0: Welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., where we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. Our goal here on the podcast is to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, to learn how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to one another despite your differences without compromising your faith. Hello again, I'm Josh. Tate, and welcome back to the Bold Love Podcast. This season, as you've heard here, this third season is themed Unlikely, which will focus on conversations that allow us to hear from those who are different than us, different faiths, different worldviews, different ideas, different backgrounds that will help shape the way we communicate civilly to each other. Today, Pastor Bob gets to talk with Walter Kim. Now, Dr. Kim, after ministering for 15 years at Park Street Church, he became the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, and he also served as teacher and resident at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Virginia. He also serves on the board of Christianity Today and World Relief and on the advisory council for Gordon College. Dr. Kim and Pastor Bob will dive into what's going on in evangelicalism, why evangelicals should be involved in multi-faith and what that means and what's the difference between that and interfaith and the importance of this moment that we have in the public square. Dr. Kim will also be a keynote speaker at the Global Faith Forum, which is March 6th and 7th, 2022 here in Dallas, Texas, which brings together people from different faith backgrounds and learn how to work together in communities across the nation. So you do not want to miss this event if you haven't signed up for it yet. You can go to GlobalFaithForum.com right now. You can register. It's free, but seating is very limited and it is going fast. So make sure to go to GlobalFaithForum.com to get your registration done today. Now I want to go ahead and welcome in the host of the Bold Love Podcast, Pastor Bob Roberts, Jr.
1: I am so excited to be with thee, Walter Kim, the new president of the National Association of Evangelicals. This is a big deal. I'm here talking about unlikely in our global faith forum and how it's unlikely people and diversity and bridges that put us together that allow us to to live in the public square together. And Walter is the new president, National Association of Evangelicals, and he's the first person of color. Walter, how does that feel?
2: Bob, thanks for this conversation, for inviting me to have it with you. Um, how does it feel? Well, it is um, uh, an honor, it's, it's sobering, it's a high sense of uh, call in the particular moment that we exist in. Uh, and it's an expression of gratitude and giving back Um, You know, as a a son of immigrant parents, my dad was actually a refugee who had escaped um, China uh, as it was um, being taken over by the communists and uh, literally crossing rivers and makeshift barrels to get to South Korea. Uh, And then when he and my mom had met and married, they immigrated to America in the the mid-60s. Uh, and that was a very complicated time to come, right? Civil rights movement, Vietnam War, political assassinations, difficult time to figure out how to become American. Uh, but not only was there an innate you know, optimism and gratitude that's so often the case for immigrant families, uh, I, I also and my family had experienced bridge building. It was people of faith who had built bridges to us. I think of the Lutheran pastor. Who had helped my parents immigrate. I think of the Irish Catholic family in whose basement we lived in in the Bronx and how the kids taught me how to ride my big wheel and get to the park and explain <laughs> baseball to me. Uh, I think about the immigrant Korean church uh, in Queens that had been a place of community. Uh, I think about as, as we moved from the big city of New York into small towns in western Pennsylvania, I, I think of uh, this young man who had reached out to probably maybe the only Asian American he had ever met uh, to befriend me and invite me into a Bible study where I discovered faith in Christ. Oh, t- and, tell me about that. I'm curious. You know, I was wondering how you became a Christian. I was going to ask you that. That's right. That's right. Um, so, I, I um, in some ways, I consider myself an accidental evangelical, at least a uh, accidental by human circumstances, providential by God's design. Uh, But uh, I I did not grow up in an evangelical household. My family were um, culturally observant uh, Christians, so we would go to church, but it wasn't a a vibrant part um, of my life. And certainly, I had no personal sense uh, of God or faith in Christ. Um, But uh, as I mentioned, this fellow Uh, Our family had moved to this uh, small town in western Pennsylvania foothills of the Appalachian Mountains and um, had a pretty good childhood. Um, But of course, there was always a a sense of, you know, is there more to life? And um, as I was hitting my teenage years and about to enter into high school, uh, I had run across uh, this youth leader um, who was gathering uh, groups of kids to study the Bible, to explore the big questions of life. Um, to do fun things um and uh, he had built some serious bridges with me you know i kind of this new york kid that had moved to the small town and uh, he was someone that had grown up for many generations uh, in this small town listened to country music exposed me to all sorts of (laughs) cultural things that were very different so so do you like garth brooks do i yes
1: (laughs) that's right good that's the most important thing
2: So, yeah, so that, you know, that, that faith um, introduction was followed up by an invitation to um, attend a Korean-American church in, um, in Pittsburgh, in the kind of big city that was closest to us, as I was um, seeking to integrate not only my faith, um, but my sense of ethnic identity. And so, our parents had made the trek every Sunday to get to this church, um, and it was there that I took an even deeper step um, in uh, my uh, introduction into the Christian faith and met high school students that seemed to really believe this stuff, which I had never encountered before And at, at that level, and um, there encountered God in a way that was um, deeply, deeply transformative, so I'm curious about this uh,
1: to my Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist friends As evangelicals. We have this phrase called to preach or called to the ministry. And it's the idea where we respond to what we sense as the divine voice of God telling us to 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 be a preacher, if you will. Tell us just a, a brief story how that happened, Walter. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, Bob, I, uh, like many uh, children of immigrants, I came to America with a lot of expectations. So, my father was a physician, and I had the expectation as the firstborn son of uh, immigrant parents uh, to follow suit and become a doctor. And so, I started college uh, in a medical, an accelerated medical program, and uh during that year had this increasing sense that um, while I think I would have enjoyed being a doctor, that um, I really, really enjoyed teaching the Bible, leading Bible studies, having the opportunity to share my faith and had some friends uh, become Christians in in the course of those conversations. And that was actually deeply transformative in the way that I thought about my life and call. So uh, when I went home to tell my parents, uh, they were not excited at all. So, Walter,
1: Uh, a lot of uh, white evangelicals and a lot of Americans don't necessarily understand the pressure on East Asian immigrants and just East Asians, especially the firstborn. That's a big deal. You had to be nervous about talking to your dad and saying, I'm not going to do what you did, dad.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, I I remember um, that first year of college, when I was asking my, you know, uh, Anglo-Caucasian friends what I should do, they would often reply um, by saying, well, what do you feel called to do? Uh, you, what are you, what are you <laughs> gifted to do? What are you, what are you passionate? And when I asked my Asian-American Christian friends what I should do, their first question was always, what, what do your parents think? Yeah. How are they going to respond? I mean, both sets of questions were really, really important. Yeah. One emphasized the individual sense of call and giftedness. The other emphasized Our corporate responsibilities in life and community, both are biblical. And and when I entered into this conversation with parents, they were deeply, deeply opposed. In fact, two years of um, very strong opposition, wanting to take me out of college. Uh, I would get random calls during the week. Uh, You know, what are you doing now? Are you you going to a Christian meeting or not? Are you studying? And my dad actually read through my personal journals uh, to see what was going on in my life. Uh, but as that was unfolding, and I and many others were praying for my parents, um, they had their own conversions. My, my oh, dad wow. literally had uh, what he says was a vision of Christ coming to him, Wow. and it changed his life, and it led to this glorious occasion just a few years after that, where the father who had gone through my personal journals who had opposed my faith, that he and I were both overseas um, talking to people about our faith. Uh, and uh, that summer, as we um, you know, shared the Bible and some Bible studies, uh, it, it was just an extraordinary experience um, to see how God had met him and changed him. And so well, when you, I think about it, you. you're going to make me
1: cry, man. <laughs> you know, my, my son, uh, I, I'm a pastor. My dad was a pastor. I had zero desire for my kids to go into ministry. If they felt called, great. But I was talking to my son, Ben, a few weeks ago, and he was telling me, he said, you know, dad, I am just as called to business as you are to being a pastor. And it and gives me great joy because he's very successful and he's going to take care of me in old age like Asian-Americans take care of their parents. I'm getting the best of both worlds, Walter. Bob, that's great to hear.
2: That's great to hear. And, and I do want to make it clear that while I had this really strong sense of call into the ministry and out, out of medicine, uh, Bob, your point is really important to make, that as followers of Jesus, um, we, we all have a calling of some sort, a, a, a vocation that God has desired us to pursue, and, and those things are all valuable and important. To contribute to the, the the work of God in this world, I think it's the future, Walter. I mean, my generation—it was all about calling
1: out pastors and church planters and so forth. It's time; it's past time to call out the businessmen. Bob Buford tried to do that, mm. and he was very frustrated because he could never get pastors and business leaders together. So he wound up with two organizations so he could speak business speak to the business guys and church speak to the church guys and. I think it's horrendous. We mean well, but we've started all these places of worship where it's come here, the preacher, instead of, no, your job is to go out business leader, doctor, uh, humanitarian, whatever it is, and make a difference. Hey, Walter, you, you are probably the most educated person to ever serve as the National Association of Evangelicals, a PhD from Harvard. What's going on with you, man? What's, what's that about? I want
2: to know about that yeah i um I don't know if I was most educated um but I certainly love to learn, and that too was a process for me um I think because of the radical nature of my own conversion and the conversion of my parents, I had this inclination to think of you know if I'm a serious follower of Jesus, then I had need to have this massive conversion experience i mean to give everything up uh, for christ and and those things are true and to a certain extent, but what I didn't have um, in my early Christian experience was a, a vision of God, a theology that was more expansive than the personal experience that incorporated the life of the mind, that incorporated business, you know, economics, the arts. And that took some time. Um, and so it wasn't until I got to Regent College um, in my late 20s, and did some theological study there uh, in Vancouver, Canada, where I started to develop a more expansive view of a God's interest in all domains of life, in the arts, uh, in the sciences, and that he actually cared um, about my mind. And so, that was the place where I thought, you know, maybe maybe this should be a part of my own discipleship. Uh, and so, that's when I decided to pursue a PhD and then but After Harvard,
1: it's so liberal. Why, why not go to a good old Bible Baptist fundamentalist PhD place? Why Harvard?
2: Uh, yeah, that, you know, that's a um, great question. Uh, I would say um, part of my concern for evangelicalism right now is that there's a sense of um, cultural fear uh, and retrenchment or opposition. And um, we should be comfortable with this historic sense that all truth is God's truth. Amen. You know, we are all created in the image of God. We all have some truth to contribute, however fallen we may be, um, and however imperfect our contributions may be. We have something to learn from everyone. Uh, So, one, there's just a deep conviction that we have something to learn from everyone. The second thing is um, I wanted to be in in a place that would be um, forcing me to be missional, that would force me to think through what does it look like for me to have a robust, confident faith in Christ in the marketplace of ideas when my view was the minority view? I love it, Walter. I love this. You know, you sound like Dallas Willard. Uh, he's
1: had a profound impact on my life. And he went to his seminary and he left because he thought, I, I don't want to be indoctrinated. I want to think. And I grew up deep East Texas, fundamentalist, white Baptist background, where indoctrination was was all I knew. I didn't know how to think. And it took me bumping up against communists and Vietnamese and Muslims and Afghans to help me understand there's a world out there and to be sharpened by that world, to be challenged by that world. And I'm with you, Walter. I, I think we fear I think it's not the only, not not the the primary reason, but I know there's some people they want to hide their kids from public schools and secular universities. I don't. I think it's we got to get out there where people are, and it makes me uncomfortable. You know, Walter, I used to be not that strong on the Trinity. I mean, I could explain it to church people, but but it was when I started working with Muslims and Jews they challenged me. It forced me to get into Torrance and, and Irenaeus and the early church fathers. And I had to think deeply. And, and But then I couldn't, if I'm going to be a pastor, I couldn't explain these huge volumes of theology. I had to make it simple where a fourth grader could could understand. I think in our isolation, we've lost the ability to think and live in the public square. Mm. So I, I, kudos, man. I believe in you. Hey, hey, this pushes up against something I'm curious about. I... I struggle sometimes. I'm sure you get this all the time. Uh, Evangelicalism, it's gotten a pretty bad rap, and and we got to take responsibility for a lot of that. Uh, John Jenkins is a close friend. He's chairman of the board for National Association of Evangelicals. He's on my board. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of challenges with evangelicals from how we're dealing with race to politicization. I mean, women, Joanne uh, Lyons is she the vice president of the board? She's the vice chair. Yeah. I didn't know what her position was. She's a good friend. I mean, what's going on with evangelicalism right now? And how do we how do we bring it into the public square where, where we hold on to our faith, but we're not angry with people about it? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I mean, evangelicalism is experiencing growing pains right now. It's, it's clearly at an inflection point. There are a lot of tensions. Um, and those tensions map what's going on in our country as a whole, uh, in the sense that there are massive demographic shifts that our country is experiencing. Uh, with the transient nature uh, of our country, uh, various regions in which people have historically grown up now are cross-pollinating. You know, it used to be the case that you could grow up in the South or, in your case, Texas, and you would pretty much stay there your entire life. And those subcultures within America were kept as subcultures. But now people are moving. They're moving into urban centers. And then the world is moving to America. So uh, there's a level of exposure to cultural differences that even in America had always existed, but now we're being exposed to. And so, Southern northern forms of evangelicalism you know midwestern uh, add to that the ingredients of the international influx um, and then add to that the history of tensions that have always existed with respect to race uh, in our country uh, we We certainly are experiencing a convergence of all sorts of conflicting forces and evangelicalism is also dealing with the fact that um this is increasingly secular age we live in. And how do we move to understanding that we do not exert power from the center, but from the margins? And that, that power is less a useful model, and we need to really think about influence and blessing. And that's the perspective that uh, those without power have, those who live on the margins, Uh, And those who now are followers of Jesus are increasingly sensing that we live on the margins. We are no longer a dominant uh, presence in so many ways. Of course, the reaction can be, well, let's grab power, um, political power. Uh, That seems to be the most expedient way. Um, But in the end, you know, the way of Jesus has always been a way in which uh, the first is last, the last first. In which leadership comes through servanthood, in which our goal is to be a blessing uh, to those around us, um, and uh, in that respect, it's a great opportunity because global Christians have been living this reality. They have. They have been living and, 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 this
1: reality. And what a moment! You know, I, I our church is a pretty contemporary church, not just in terms of its worship, but how we begin to work in Vietnam, working with the government, and what does that look like? How do you hold on to your faith, not be manipulated by people, but serve in the name of Jesus? And I think what you said about the margins is huge. And the way I was raised, I mean, my destiny was to have all these denominational positions, but the more I got on the edge, the margins, if you will, of loving people, I learned two things. Number one, you probably weren't going to be in a major denominational position because you made people too uncomfortable when you were close friends with communists and Muslims and others. But I also learned that's where the gospel really flourished. Unexpected people wind up following Jesus. You start realizing the difference in sharing the gospel and not putting uh, anti-communist statements mixed in with how to accept Jesus. You know, I mean, it was all mixed up for me, and it changed things. But I also learned this, though you may not be in the center, man, you would be in the center of what's going on in the world. I mean, hmm. I get pulled into so many different things with so many different governments and, and leaders, and 80% of my time, Walter, is now spent outside Christian people, and I love it. Hmm. I mean, people ask me, Bob, do you ever share your faith there? Are you kidding? They're constantly asking me, okay, Bob, what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, how can you be a Christian and be friends with us? And which, which leads me to our event, our unlikely event, where we're having our Global Faith Forum, and Dr. Muhammad al alisa will be coming, the president of the Muslim World League. He's one of the most influential Muslim leaders in the world. Some people would freak out, Bob, why would you have a Muslim in the church? Well, because he's trying to Promote tolerance and religious freedom. And and he's Saudi. And no, they don't do it like we do it. And I wish they did. But they're making progress. So instead of saying, oh, you've got to do all this stuff or I'm not going to be a friend, I want to celebrate what they're doing. So why did you agree to come to this and be one of the keynote speakers, Walter? I'm just curious.
2: Yeah, I think there are two reasons one's theological and one's personal. Uh, The theological reason is um, Acts 17. I think of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and you begin Acts chapter 17, and he's um, in the synagogues in Thessalonica, engaging with um, religious, uh, you know, Jews and going to the scriptures and talking about the Messiah, and he's letting loose with deep theology from the Hebrew scriptures. And then in the second half, he's in Athens, and he's talking to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers on their turf, not asking them to come back to the synagogues in Athens, he's going to where they're going and seeking to engage in, in ways that um, make sense in the kind of conversations that make sense. And this gets back to the questions, you know, that you were raising earlier about education. And he, he, he knew what he was talking about. He really understood those philosophies and philosophers and even quoted um, Greek philosophers. Uh, even quoting Greek philosophers that we're talking about Zeus, you know, in him, in whom we have to back our being. up his point.
1: Yes. Oh my gosh, he must not have been an expositor. He's quoting non-Christians
2: and, for and, his and, base. That's right, and he's building these bridges because the gospel is that important. It's that important to find every means possible to build bridges, have conversations, learn other people's language. And the second is very personal. Um, Again, I uh, go back to how formative my first year in college is, not only a sense of call from medicine into um, vocational ministry, but um, my sense of call of uh, the vibrancy of the common human desire to find meaning in life. So, it was probably the second, third week of college, and uh, it, it's the classic college moment. We're sitting in the hallway. We're all still getting to know each other, and conversations turned about the deep things late into the night. And I, I kid you not, literally, there, were, uh, there was an observant Jew and an agnostic Jew. There was a Hindu. Uh, there was um, a soft atheist and a hardcore atheist. There was um, an evangelical Christian And I guess I would be the second evangelical Christian, and there was this um, white guy sitting next to me, leaning over. He didn't know what I was, but you know, saw I was Asian, and leaning over. Did you have any
1: Southern uh, white evangelicals like uh, me? um,
2: No, they're. they're, Oh man, they weren't there. Um, I I don't know why they didn't end up in my hallway, but they <laughs> didn't end up in my hallway. You know, and, uh, and again, there's this white guy that wanted to um, become a Buddhist, and he actually was hoping that I was a, a, a Buddhist, and he was, you know, leaning over and asking me, are, are you a Buddhist? No, I'm actually a Christian, and was slightly disappointed in that. And <laughs> as, as the conversation unfolded deep into tonight, I realized there is this common longing for meaning, for friendship, for purpose. Why are we studying this? And truth, even though we were beginning in very different places, had different presuppositions, different conclusions, we had similar desires. And that was deeply important to recognize. Why would I not want to have conversations with people who are different? There is this profound human desire for meaning, for truth. And if we have different presuppositions and different conclusions, well, how are they going to change if we're not in connection in community with one another in deep dialogue where we understand one another? And, and so, you know, this sense in which I think it not only theologically uh, compelling, but personally compelling to make these connections.
1: You know, I've learned too, Walter, is I've become friends with Muslim leaders around the world working with them is the best way to ensure religious freedom and religious persecution being brought down. You know, we, we think we can show up uh, and just say, Hey, we're Christians do what we say and listen to us. But when you show up with a couple of Christians and four or five imams and Muslim leaders, and they're challenging their own. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have to challenge ourselves I think moving forward in this global public square, the most uh, critical group to critique is your own. Yes. To look deeply and say, "Hey, you know what? We we probably didn't do that as as good as we should have." I'm friends with Hamza Yusuf. He'll be at the conference, and I don't know if you know Hamza, but uh, oh, you're going to like Hamza. He's a surfer boy, white dude like me that found Jesus. Uh, not, that found Islam. I wish I could have talked him into finding Jesus. But I love him. He's a close friend. He calls me all the time. And he's got a photographic memory. He's quoting everyone from uh, Paul to uh, Aquinas. He got me reading Aquinas, Mm. you know, one of the sheikhs, one of the top Islamic scholars in in the world. But the whole thing, we can talk and we don't get angry. Me and Imam Majid, you know Majid, you know, he does. I don't understand why we just can't disagree. Why do we vilify trash? I mean, Majid has had more people attack him falsely from from any person I've ever known. And I just don't get, why do you think it is we're so angry with people? We just can't talk. Hey, I disagree. But you're still created in the image of God. I love you. I care about you. I'll be here for you. But we disagree. What's going on with this, Walter?
2: Yeah, Bob, you've raised up a really interesting point. And I think it's important to draw out of you know, when we think about interfaith dialogue, We could approach it um, with a very squishy set of convictions, you know, what's the lowest common denominator, or we can set our convictions aside out of fear of conflict and difference. Um, But what I appreciate about um, your approach and your perspective on life is there's kind of a a confidence in our conviction, in our sense of what is true, Uh, but that confidence includes the dignity of others Yes, And uh, and so, how can we not lay aside our convictions? How can we keep them, engage with them, but include as part of our convictions the inherent dignity of others with whom we disagree? And how can we um, be so secure in who we are in Christ that if someone disagrees with us, even thinks we're profoundly wrong, that that's okay? Yeah. You know, at the, at the end of the day, Jesus still loves me. My identity is in him, not in the approval or the agreement of the person that I am talking with. And that gives me a capacity to love that person, to, 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 wow. to love that person in, in this robust dialogue that takes seriously our convictions, that dignifies the fact that we have differing wow. convictions, but includes in those set of convictions our common humanity, and uh, it comes from a place of our deep, deep security in Christ, that at the end of the day, I don't need the approval of others. Um, I have Christ's approval, and that gives me a tremendous freedom to go forward. Man, Walter, I- I'm with you. You know, when our
1: church started engaging with Muslims and we'd go visit the mosque or the synagogue, some people were nervous. Okay, Bob, we're building these relationships. We still believe Jesus is the way the truth, the life, Right. And I said, yes, but there's almost, in a lot of apologetics, almost an arrogance about I'm right and you're wrong. And I'm convinced the opposite is true, that the more we are convinced of the truth that we believe, the more humble and the more kind we will be, because if we really believe that truth, then God defends himself. He doesn't need me to convince people. He needs me to love people. And and I need to know the arguments and the debates. But if I have to trash somebody or belittle them or put them down in order to convince them that, I've right, that I'm right, I, I've lost. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I don't know many people who've come to Christ like that. Okay, Walter, last two questions. Ten mm-hmm. years from now, you've been uh, the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. I want you to give me the best case and the worst case scenario I want you to give me three sentences, two or three sentences, 10 years from now, evangelicals, if we don't move forward, it will. And then the second, if we move forward, then we will. So, let's start with the negative and end on the positive. Yeah.
2: We will have missed one of the greatest opportunities for spiritual renewal and contribution to a society that is deeply longing for someone to be reconcilers. If we are to be ministers of reconciliation, as Paul calls us and tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, and if our country is, and it is, experiencing such incredible polarization and fracturing, we have one of the greatest opportunities before us to proclaim a gospel To an increasingly secularized and polarized country, that there is a God and a Savior who offers reconciliation. To have missed that is to have missed one of the greatest opportunities uh, of of service. And frankly, God will raise up someone else. Yep. Yep. You know, if it's not the NAE, if it's not some other evangelical organization or groups or evangelical churches, God will raise up churches of another sort. I and this is where I'm going to pivot to my hope. So, you know, twenty—I lived twenty years in Boston. My kids were born and raised there, and uh, it's often thought of uh, a post-Christian, secular, uh, pagan area of the country. And by and large, that there's truth to that. I mean church attendance, belief in the Bible, they're all uh, at the lowest lows uh, in our country. So, it may be surprising uh, to hear that the number of churches in Boston actually doubled from 1960 to 2000, Double in this post-Christian secularized uh, area of the country. And most of that doubling came through immigrant churches who are bringing in a spiritual vitality. In fact, missiologists and Christianity Today uh, ran an article calling it uh, Boston's quiet revival, that there was a renewal uh, of the, uh, the church of Jesus through these immigrant communities, Southeast Asian, uh, Dominican, you know, uh, Republic um Puerto Ricans, Brazilians. I mean, they were coming from all parts of the world, North Africa, founding these churches and and adding to the historic um, Chinese Christian community that uh, was in Boston at that time. So, there's a vitality there that if we could see a bridge-building movement that embraces this diverse form of evangelicalism moving behind, you know, beyond this historic um, white organiza- uh, evangelicalism that is often the case of you know, many churches, evangelical churches in America. What we're going to see is the beauty of the reconciling gospel of Jesus at work. Amen. It is already happening. We just need to catch up to that. I'm with you, Walter. I
1: believe I get excited as a white evangelical about what God is doing because I work all over the world and I work with so many non-whites. And I, I think the best of white evangelicalism is when we celebrate what we've been passionate about for so many decades, the gospel going to the ends of the earth and the nations. It's happening. Why in the world do I want to get upset that, that we don't get all the leadership positions? It's happening. I mean, why... Why would it not be diverse? Why does it have to stay in our hands? Why can't we share it? God's got a plan for all of us, and nobody gets left out. And the power centers are not what raises us up. It's Jesus, and Mm -hmm. it's getting to be a part of that. So, here's my take, and we'll wrap. First of all, I love your heart and your spirit. You can go with me anywhere in the world I go. Walter, I think that revival has started. And I know people would say, Robert, you're crazy. You're off your chair. No, I do. I just think we don't see it. Mm -hmm. I think he's raising up young people that are looking beyond all of this. They're dropping out of church. They're not dropping out of Jesus. The message for the 21st century is being reformatted. I have all kind of young friends that I love, uh, Fook Dang and, and Daniel Yang. And I can go down the list of all these guys that I see that God is raising up in profound ways, get excited about it. And I think our hope is going to come from the global church. And I think it's hard for white evangelicals because we've been at the center of telling the rest of the world what they need to do. And for the first time, we need to learn from them. 20 years ago, when I began to visit the world, I would tell pastors, you all want to go to China? No. If you go to China, find that pastor you want to work, work with, sit down, shut up, take notes, come back home, put into practice what you can. And then when it's working, then go back and say, here's some things that we may have to offer you. Hmm. So Walter Kim, thank you for being here. You ought to write a book, man. I would read your book. I think it would do incredible. And here's what's cool. You've made all kinds of statements without trashing the right or the left or individuals. You have a gift. And, uh, I hope you'll use that gift in the widest possible manner because man, you've been encouraging to me today. Thank you.
2: Bob, thanks for this opportunity to talk. Your energy is infectious. I love it. And so clear that you love Jesus and you're about his work in this world. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us on this unlikely journey with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. And during this episode, you heard about this historic event in March of 2022 called the Global Faith Forum. It will be one of the first national gatherings of Christians, Muslims, and other faith leaders. We'll gather to discuss bridging the gap in our communities as the fear between faiths shouldn't be something that causes us to destroy one another and the world we live in, but to understand one another and move forward building resilient communities together. And you are invited. It's in Dallas, Texas, March 6th and 7th. Space is limited and it's filling up. So you can reserve your spot right now at globalfaithforum.com. For full show notes, links, and details of this episode, you can find those at bobrobertsjr.com or at boldlovepodcast.com. And we appreciate you joining us. And remember, at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you to live out your faith boldly, learn how to better love your neighbor, and how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith.